We're looking together at First and Second Thessalonians uh, these weeks, not Corinthians, Thessalonians. I invite you to turn to Second Thessalonians uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you who have been paying attention, and uh, we who preach like to think that you who listen are paying attention, uh, today's text may occasion that strange sense of deja vu for you. Uh, you may think that you've heard this before somewhere recently. That's because much of what the Apostle Paul wrote in what we have as Second Thessalonians, he had already written in First Thessalonians. Uh, the two letters are parallel, and by my calculation, about three-fourths of what we have in Second Thessalonians is very similar, if not identical, to what we have in First Thessalonians. I got a little concerned uh, last Sunday when Pastor Dean emphasized that Paul was delivering final words to the uh, Thessalonians in the last chapter of the first letter because I knew I was scheduled to preach uh, in a few days from uh, Second Thessalonians. I didn't want to feel redundant uh, or have my words considered redundant. So Second Thessalonians chapter 1. In the second letter, Paul is writing a second time to the same people in the same situation about the same things. Uh, to review a bit, Thessalonica was a Roman city of Greece where Paul and his uh, co-workers, Silas and Timothy, had had a short but very productive ministry. That story is told back in the book of Acts in chapter 17. They preached the gospel and men and women came to know Jesus and then Paul and Silas and Timothy and their co-workers were booted out of that city, leaving a fledgling church to develop wings and fly as God's people in that time and place, a very inhospitable place for the Christian message and those who would tell it to their neighbors. From a human perspective, not a lot could be expected from that inauspicious beginning, from that little band of Christ followers that Paul left there in Thessalonica. Uh, even after Paul and Silas and the others left town in the middle of the night, persecutors came from Thessalonica to the next city on their route, a city named Berea, to harass Paul and Timothy and Silas. And so it looked like nothing could come out of their work in Thessalonica. Yet when Paul wrote his first letter to them some months later, he commends them, those Christians there at Thessalonica, for their faith, that is their abiding, enduring, growing confidence in God. He commends them for their love for each other. He commends them for their hard, persistent work in the face of opposition, for Jesus in the face of great opposition. And he has two great themes in his letter, the second letter as well as the first. I said them to you some weeks ago, two great themes, eschatology and ethics, that is end time events and how they are supposed to act in the meantime. Uh, some Thessalonian believers were worried that they had somehow missed out on the second coming or that their brothers and sisters in the faith who had died were somehow not going to experience all the blessings of Christ when Christ comes to claim those who are his. And so when Paul writes to them, he writes to encourage them with the good news 
that they have received and the good news that is yet to come. Uh, Jesus has come to save us from our sins, to make a place for us in the family of God, and Jesus Christ is returning. And when he returns, those who are his will be rewarded. So Paul picks up those main themes again. His reason for writing is to encourage people who are being persecuted, whose faith was being tested, whose confidence in Christ was at risk because of their trials and troubles that they faced. So it's against that backdrop and into that situation that Paul wrote the second letter. If I had to summarize his encouragement, his instructions to them for what they were to do, I would say, God is faithful and will do just as he says he will. Keep on keeping on. So let us listen to this God's holy word for us from the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. And let us listen with the intent of being not merely hearers, but doers of the word of God. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evident that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless this, his word to us, helping us to understand it and put it into practice. The first lesson from this passage reinforces one that you've heard before, no doubt, and that is that Christ followers should expect trouble. We don't know persecution as some believers do. What we experience hardly qualifies to be mentioned in the same breath. But we will experience what are called trials here in this passage. The Greek word is philipsis. 
Uh, I put that in just because it's a fun word to say, thlipsis. Would you like to say it with me? Thlipsis, trouble. The persecution the Thessalonians were experiencing calls our attention once again to the countercultural nature of being a follower of Jesus. To follow Jesus is to swim against the stream, against the incoming tide. It's to cut against the grain. It's to walk up the down escalator. We are supposed to be swimming against the current stream of public opinions and likes. You know, the desire to be liked is prevalent in our culture today, part of that creeping and creepy Facebook mentality. It used to be that something hadn't happened unless it was photographed, unless you took a picture of it. Now it's something hasn't happened until somebody likes it. I fear we're becoming a society of Facebook friends who desperately want us and our things to be liked. But Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world dislikes you. Actually, he said, if the world hates you. So much Christian preaching and teaching and publishing these days is of the how-to variety. How to be a better something or other. How to successfully navigate the pitfalls and minefields of your world. How to ease the difficulties that we all have and smooth out the wrinkles that are part of our living today. Uh, Much of that is self-help plus. Self-help plus a little bit of Jesus. Here's how to have it all, and, and God will throw in at no extra charge some little religious or spiritual extras. The aim is to help Christians fit more comfortably in. But Jesus, if you study what he said, doesn't seem to be too concerned about us fitting in, about smoothing things out for us. Helping us fit is not his primary aim or his priority. Instead, he says, from the very beginning, he says, followers of his won't fit in. They won't be comfortable. They will be noticed not for their sameness with those around, but for their difference from those around. And so persecution and trouble and opposition are viewed as the rule, not the exception. It's not a matter of if you find opposition or if you are treated badly. It is when. It's a sure thing, you see. The probability is 100%. We're not supposed to fit in. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Interpersonal tension results from living rightly. It could be that we have oversold trusting Jesus as the solution to all our problems, as to everything, when in reality, putting your confidence in Christ can create and often, most often, does create problems in living with people. Sometimes our message has been, come to Jesus and everything will get better. But I think Jesus warned us against that. He said, don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, that we can understand. (laughs) A man's enemies will be members of his own household. 
You've got to admire the honesty of Jesus. Come with me, and conflict is sure to follow. Paul wrote to his younger co-worker, Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How could Paul make such a sweeping statement? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He is convinced that there is a fundamental tension between the message and the way of life of Christians on the one hand and the mindset and way of life of the world on the other. And conflict between the two is inevitable. Fallen human nature and the new creation that we are in Christ Jesus are radically opposed and in perpetual conflict with each other. Sooner or later, God-centered Christians will be mistreated for the things they believe or the lives they live. And to one degree or another, all of you who are serious about putting God first in your work and your home and your school and your leisure will bump into some form of opposition. Goodness is not easily tolerated by evil because it exposes evil for what it is. It's viewed as a statement against evil, as an indictment of evil, an exposure of evil. Jesus said, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So this flips us, this interpersonal tension most often comes into the life of the person who seriously follows Christ. But I have to add quickly, not every trouble we experience or trial we meet or suffering we endure is persecution for the sake of righteousness. Uh, Sometimes it's just the plain old ordinary vicissitudes of life. Life is hard. Harder for some than others. Harder sometimes for all of us than it is at other times for us. And righteousness does not equal obnoxiousness. Sometimes the trouble you're experiencing is just because you're a little bit odd, a little bit obnoxious. Our troubles and suffering have to be put into the context of the kingdom. The context of the kingdom. And I mean kingdom in two senses here. Kingdom in the sense of the total scope of what God is doing around the world. All that God and God's people are and are doing around the world. What the church is experiencing right now elsewhere. That, the kingdom in that sense. And also kingdom in the sense of God's coming kingdom. What is yet to come in fuller reality, in greater fullness, as God's presence with and for his people. We need to put our suffering in the context of the kingdom. That ought to cause us to value and protect our freedom from systemic persecution. You know, in America, we're blessed beyond any other nation in the world. What a privilege it is to live as a follower of Jesus Christ in the United States of America in this first part of the 21st century. And that's the conclusion that any well-informed Christian traveler would come to. Whether he gets on a plane and visits other countries or 
just reads the newspaper or surfs the net to see what's happening around the world. You wouldn't want to live anywhere else. World travel makes for grateful American Christians. I can guarantee you that those going on the MV to Haiti will return toward the end of July grateful to be a Christian in the United States of America. That should cause us to value highly the safeguards of religious freedom that we have here. We are free like no people on earth to both experience and express our faith. And so we don't know much about persecution firsthand. Uh, We can get all excited when something happens that seems to infringe upon our freedom. Some misguided principle misinterprets the separation of church and state and clamps down on a teacher, uh, we we think, or uh, seems to restrict that uh, freedom. We're quick to call that sort of thing persecution. On a more personal level, we, we sometimes experience the, the ostracism and, and ridicule that comes from taking an unpopular stand in the workplace or at school in our neighborhoods or, or elsewhere. And, and, and we think, oh, now we're being persecuted. But I have to tell you, it's nothing compared to what Christians elsewhere are experiencing. And so I'm encouraging you to be grateful for the freedom we enjoy. Always vigilant, of course, to the erosion of that freedom, but possessing an overwhelming sense of thankfulness to God that causes us to value and protect our freedom from systemic persecution. This text also calls us to become informed about and active in the plight of Christians around the world. When I was young, we had on our bookshelves at home a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, you could read the account of Christians down through the centuries who were killed for their faith. Our particular version happened to be illustrated, so it was an interesting uh, book to look at. But those persecutions... Those martyrdoms were long ago, far, far away. But you need to know that martyrdom and persecution are taking place today. It is contemporary. Just Google persecuted church, and you'll see that it is not yesterday's news, but today's news. Two and a half billion people live in some 80 countries around the world that are under significant restrictions on their religious freedom. 60% of all believers live in one of those countries. And 16%, about 250 million of all Christians live in countries where there is severe state interference and harassment. The U.S. State Department from time to time puts out a report on worldwide, worldwide religious freedom. And countries are listed where the freedom is restricted. These are countries where brothers and sisters in Christ are ridiculed and financially ruined and humiliated and raped and arrested and sold into slavery and beaten and tortured and killed for nothing other than being a follower of Jesus Christ. 
So that information is available out there, and I encourage you to go to that information and, and read it, to be informed and, and not be insulated. But in addition to moving us to consider the plight of Christians elsewhere, this passage from 2 Thessalonians, like 1 Thessalonians, is meant to stimulate us to look beyond life now to heaven later. From history and the present to the future, where a just God will measure out justice, punishment for the persecutors, a trouble for those who trouble you is the way Paul put it, and reward for the righteous, the end of trouble, relief from trouble for those who are troubled. In the last beatitude, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now those are strange words to those who stand a 100% chance of being persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice because you're in good company. This is what happened to the prophets before you. It's the inevitable result of standing for God, and it puts you in the train of God's people from earliest times. The apostles of Jesus, the first disciples, learned this lesson. There's evidence of that in Acts chapter 5. They are hauled before the religious authorities because they've been teaching about Jesus. They've been spreading the word about a crucified and risen Savior. And so the Sanhedrin uh, takes them into custody and they debate back and forth and they reach their conclusion. And they call the apostles in and they have them flogged, beaten. And then they order them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And then there is this report of what the apostles did, did next. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. When you are persecuted, even to the least extent, you are put in a grand company of people that includes prophets and apostles. Think of that. The second reason to rejoice looks beyond this life to heaven. We so easily forget that God made us to share life with him forever, that this world is not our home, that we're not permanent residents here. That beyond this life for those who trust Jesus Christ is eternal life, is heaven. And that ought to be our focal point even when we are experiencing opposition. All else is temporary, even suffering because of Christ. Listen to these words from two other letters of, of Paul. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, Paul says, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, 
but what is unseen is eternal. Psalm 35 says, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You see, sorrow lasts a night, but joy comes in the morning. It's not permanent, this sorrow, this trouble, this philipsis. It's not our enduring condition. Mother Teresa said, In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious tortures on earth, will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. So eschatology, what's going to happen? You're going to suffer if you belong to Christ, but at the end of that suffering, there will be joy in the presence of God. In ethics, how are you supposed to act? Christ followers, leave vengeance to the Lord. Justice will be done by God, in God's way, in his time, but vengeance is to be left to him. And then lastly, this text challenges us to be different from our world so that we can make a difference in the world. We are to be salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. You are the light of the world. Did you know that the Beatitudes are followed immediately by Jesus' words about being salt and light? That Beatitude, the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, is followed immediately by Jesus' announcements, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We are to have God's intended effect on the world around us. And the value of salt and the value of light lies in their difference with their surroundings. Salt makes no difference if it's lost its saltiness and is no different from what it's supposed to season and flavor. And light that is hiding in the dark is no light at all. So we're told to be salt and be light. At the risk of sounding like another suave, debonair, older man, (laughs) I say to you, stay salty, my friends. Don't hide your light. So rather than being just a boring repeat of something we've heard before, this text is the active, living word of God to us. Think about that. God, by his spirit, has spoken to us this morning through his word. And his word provokes us and confronts us and challenges us and dares us. It calls our attention again to the countercultural character of following Christ. It helps us understand that interpersonal tension often results from living rightly. It causes us to value our freedom. It calls us to become informed about and active in helping Christians who are being persecuted around the world. It stimulates us to look beyond this life to the kingdom of God in all its fullness, to heaven. And it challenges us to be different from the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand for the benediction.